Hi, I'm Cody Elaine Oliver. I created the popular Black Love docuseries with my husband after seeing the lack of Black people in media and entertainment in happy, loving relationships. We were actually being told there was a Black marriage crisis. So I asked Black people who were married what it takes to make their marriage work. And after more than 200 interviews, I've heard it all. So buckle up and enjoy getting the full story directly from the couples themselves. This is Black Love, The Interviews. Well, uh, my family lived around the corner from Debbie's. And it was this street that she lives on that my brother and I usually never walked up. For what, I don't know why, but we just didn't. This particular, this is in 1971, uh, summertime. It was a, and they had what they call play blocks, where vans would come to particular blocks and set up equipment, you know, portable basketball uh, courts and, and have games and stuff, you know. And so my brother and I saw it. And saw the activity going on, so we decided to walk up the street that day. And um, near the corner, we saw these girls, and they were playing king ball. You know, there was a bunch of activity going on, but they were playing king ball. And it was Debbie and her sister, and, um, you know, we thought they were very attractive, you know. And I uh, looked at Debbie. And I watched her for a minute and I was inquiring about her. And um, so, you know, being a little boy, you know, I just, okay, I don't know how to go up and approach her. So I approached her through the sport. You know, I knew how to play king ball. And so I proceeded to go in there and uh, <laughs> just smash away and uh, made myself hate it instantly. <laughs> Being all aggressive and little, you know. So um, that's the first time I encountered That's the first time I saw And uh, I was immediately attracted to her. I was just 14 myself. And I immediately hated him <laughs> after that game. And, you know, because we we, we played uh, nice sports, you know, nice play, King Bop. And... So when you play, you know, hit the ball from one block to the other, you know, it was friendly. It was nice. It was not. And so when Mike and uh, his brother Jimmy came up, they didn't play like that. They played like boys. And uh, they did. They slammed the ball and just slammed it. And it was just immediately like shut out. And just and I was so mad. I was smoking. I was like, you don't play fair. You ain't supposed to play like that. Y'all slam the ball. You ain't supposed to play. Oh my God, a whole argument ensued from there. And it was like, I can't sustain them. <laughs> that was my first thought, my first encounter with him and his brother. And, you know, from there, it was just, <sighs> then they started coming around a little bit and playing. And then we would try to set rules. Now we're not playing slamming. We're not gonna be slamming the ball. And he was like, okay, okay, we're gonna play right. We're gonna play right, okay. Then they would start playing and you know, start off really nice and and they couldn't help themselves. They couldn't. They just started immediately slamming the ball again and it was another argument. And then they just started coming around little by little and then, you know, we started uh I still didn't really like them that much. But um as they came there's always some kind of fight, always some type of controversy, some kind of challenge, you know. We would get into all the time between my, me and my sisters, mostly my older sister, me, and him and his brother. I was immediately attracted to her. But, you know, I'm a 14-year-old boy. I don't know how to say, you know, this is why I'm doing these things. You know, um, I'm trying to impress her, but at the same time, I'm making her mad. So uh, my intentions the whole time was to, at some point, tell her how I felt about her. You know, I want you to be my girlfriend. But my 14-year-old mind, I'm slamming the ball. <laughs> you know, so I don't know. And constantly doing things that, you know, that I interpret as, 
he, oh, he's so sick. He, all he do is brag about things and brag about himself or how smart he is or how he can swim. You know, so that's how my interpretation was like, um, oh, he's just so conceited, you know, so. But anyway, we just started. I actually was going with another boy, a younger boy, but not a younger boy uh, around that area. But we really weren't serious. Like we never got into a serious uh, relationship. We were just kind of friends, go to movies together. But then Mike started coming around and it kind of like, it kind of just drifted into, kind of drifted really into um, me seeing him because my older sister started seeing his older brother. And um, I just did everything she did. And so it was um, like, we just started going out together. She said, well, we might go to maybe, I don't even know if we went anywhere, but just maybe to the movies or something. And, you know, my sister Sharon, she would say, oh, I'm going, you know, I'm going, I'm going with Jimmy. I said, what, you going with Jimmy for real? And she said, yeah, Michael, wanna, he want to go out too. He, you know, he needed somebody to go out with. Debbie, you want to go? And I, I said, okay, yeah, I'll go. So it kind of like started from there. And then, like he, like he said, we were 14 years old. So we really didn't have any place to go. We didn't have any money or anything like that. So we would just maybe go up the street or go around to a, a movie. The Leader Theater was right on Lancaster Avenue. And, you know, just be together in a house. When did you realize you actually liked him? Or did you ever actually tell her how much you think I did? I told her that. Um, yeah. I don't know. We was playing tag or something. You know, uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, he was, he was playing tag. tag or something. Cold, but yeah. some, some game, you know. Yeah. And uh, we got into an area where we were sort of isolated. There was a little playground right up the street. Mm-hmm. You know? So we were running through places trying to find a switch. It was a hot cold, but it was. Mm-hmm. And um, we first, uh, I mean, we just kind of met in this junction. You know, I said, hey, I, you know, I want you to be my girlfriend. And, she said, okay. Yep. I said, oh, okay. <laughs> I th- and I think I did know that I really liked him then. Um, you know, so I said, okay. And I really, I didn't really know what to do as a girlfriend, you know, at that age or anything like that. But, you know, um, like I said, I would uh, just follow whatever my sister did. I, you know, I think it was okay for me to do too. So, you know, oftentimes we would go out together. It got more serious. Actually, at 14, we just, you know, we did make some mistakes. So we didn't, we kind of drifted away at 14. So we didn't, we weren't really together for two years. And it got to be more serious once at 16. So now uh, I'm trying to think. He was in the service. And uh, after two years, he started wanting to come around again. And I was like, no, I'm really not interested. But my sister was still kind of, on the verge of, or kind of halfway with his brother. And, uh, you know, she would give me messages from his brother, but he was still in the service. And, uh, and I said, I really, I don't, I don't really want a relationship. I don't really want to be bothered with that. And, uh, you know, from there, he was very persistent. He was persistent. The whole time we were apart, I sent her messages that I wanted to be back with her. And uh, so she mentioned I was in the military. I went in when I was uh, 17. So while I was writing home, I would always send her messages and told my brother to tell her that uh, I still wanted to write. Or be with her, but mostly just write her, you know. So uh, one time on leave, I did come around and uh, just started talking to her again. And from that point, we was pretty much together since then. Yeah, we did a lot of talking, just a lot of talking about the past, as you want to say, the past at 17. But mm-hmm. we did. We did a lot of talking and... Um, I still really wasn't ready to get into a, a serious relationship because I was just 17, 16, something like that. And, um, you know, but we did start seriously talking and just, you know, and that's how it started. But 
not really into a real serious relationship. I don't know how, you know, how serious I thought it through. I didn't yeah. think it was, you know, that we were going to just jump up and get married or anything, you know. But I really, really liked it, you know, and this, I wanted her to be my girlfriend. So I wasn't really taking it further than that, thinking it through, like we was going to, you know, just go off and get married or something. But she was my girl, you know, in my mind. She was my girlfriend. What kept you attached to each other? Well, she was pretty, first of all. You know, she was very attractive to me and I was very attracted. When I say not attracted to me, but she was attractive to me. She was very attractive to me. And uh, she had a unique personality to me um, that was different from what I was used to and what I would like to become accustomed to. You know, I just liked her. Her um, personality, you know, mesh with mine the way I saw myself. So, and what kept me from actually giving in was because I didn't realize he was always trying to impress me. So, in my mind, I was just thinking, like I said, you know, oh, he's just so conceited. He's, you know, he's always doing things or trying to do things and make himself look good. Or, you know, make, because he was very smart, very, very smart. He could do anything like swim and, you know, play ball and win and basketball. He was very good. He excelled even in school. You know, he was on a roll and he always excelled at everything. But and my interpretation was, you know, he was always boasting himself and conceited and always bragging. And, but I did not take it that he was trying to impress me that way. And when we got back together at 16, I started feeling and seeing that he really did like me. And so that's what made me start to give in some. I still wasn't really quite, I was like, mm -mm. But that's what made me really start to really like him because I saw how he was about me. And I saw that he was trying to be responsible and not just trying to, you know, take me to bed or, you know, it wasn't like that at that point. He was real, uh, very patient, real patient, very, very, very considerate of my feelings, you know, always wanting to do things for me and, you know, to show me that he cared. And, he, you know, it wasn't like he was just or like any other boy that just, you know, wanted to get some. But that's how it was. That's how I seen every that's how I seen every man anyway, every boy anyway. And because of my my past with my father. I didn't really have a, a father like that, not a father figure. That's what I learned. You know, that's what I learned. The first thing my mother ever told us as we were becoming teenagers, because she had three girls and two boys, but the girls were the oldest. So the first thing she ever taught us was, and my aunts, was never take money from a man, never take them from anything, because all they want is one thing. So as soon as you take money from them, you know, you don't want to compromise yourself. That's what we were taught from the time we were young girls. And so I never did, never did, and neither did my sisters. And so it was from the beginning, never trust, you know, never trust. And because my father wasn't in my life and I've only ever saw him not seen him, was the absentee or a father figure, you know, that for me, even though I didn't formulate the words in my mind was, you know, you can't even trust, you can't even trust your own father. So why would I trust anybody else to care about me? You know, when my father didn't care about me and my father didn't care about my mother, you know. I mean, you know, I see things totally different now, you know, just things just happen and, you know, you just don't, it's not even intended to be that way. But anyway, long story short, um, that's what, made me start really liking him because I started to trust him that he wasn't he could feel things and her, he and I were very mature at a young age you know he did try to come back around but he but you know I just wasn't really I was I didn't know what I was doing you know I didn't know you know I mean still still living under my mother and my mother was you know I was underage 
And so, um, you know, I didn't really know what to do. So I just said, look, I'm, you know, mm -mm, we're not doing that. But and then he's he didn't he just kind of stopped pursuing me. And because his situation was so touchy, um, then he just moved on. And then he had other girlfriends and then he had other children, you know, two other relationships. And so when he started coming back around at, you know, what, 16, I really wasn't trying to hear nothing then. I was like, oh, no, this is not my dream. <laughs> this is absolutely not my dream, you know, to have, you know, a relationship with somebody who already has children. And, you know, so I that's one of the reasons, that's one of the main reasons that I fought back. And I just, you know, I just was very, very, very resistant. But there again, you know, when I saw how he really was about me, it made me feel like, you know, he's not really sounding like other boys or, you know, like you get to see the whole rap and other, you know, other guys you hear the roll. Oh yeah, come on, sister. Let me, you know, let's go. Let me get some dinner. You know, you, you know, we can come up here and we can, you know, no, it wasn't, it just wasn't like that. Mm -hmm. And um, the fact that how patient he was and just how much he just put, poured into it and, you know. Okay. I mean, it's by 17, like she said, I had other children by, by 17. So it's not like, she had time to process things and digest things, you know, this is still, and it's all within the same community. It's all within a couple block mm -hmm. radius, you know, so no, I wasn't being responsible and no, you know, so how could she know? But, but you know, I'm just a some... wild kid, but I'm still, you know, as wild as I was, I still liked her, you know, so I wanted her to know that. and. You know, I wasn't settled myself, you know. I had to grow into some things and I had to grow up. And I did some. And, uh, you know, this whole maturation process has spanned years then. I believe the first time I started kind of wanting to accept it myself was when he, I think I was getting ready to go to my senior prom. And I didn't really have nobody to take him because at that point, I was really not interested in doing anything with any other boy or any other, you know, just not getting involved in a relationship. My mom was like tunnel vision to finish school, to finish school, graduate, get my diploma and whatever else came after that, I was going to do to set my path on a career. Didn't know what it was. My mother really couldn't afford to send me to college. Um, at that point, um, I was, um, you know, I just didn't really, in my mom, I didn't have time for no boy. I didn't have time for no, you know, for that, you know, um, I didn't have time for him. And, uh, I can't remember the first time we actually came around. I think he was in the, he was in the service and he was still sending these messages back. I'm like, you know, please stop sending these messages. But, you know, but what it was, was I realized later that because my heart was with him, I didn't want another relationship. And I did have other relationships, but they it didn't amount to anything. I didn't, there was nothing in common to me with no other person that I was with. And, uh, you know, I definitely wasn't, you know, I definitely wasn't having an intimate relationship with no other, because with no other boy, because at that point I felt like I made a bad mistake. This is what I felt. I wasn't making that mistake again. So I was very determined. My mother trusted me, you know, and she, you know, she was like, you know, just, she, she let me go. She didn't try to put me down or start giving me lectures or nothing like that. She just, you know, she talked to me and she just kind of let me go. Like do, you know, what I felt, she felt like I was, I had to grow up and, you know, she wasn't going to tie me down or anything like that. But at that point I felt like I was mature enough to make a decision that I wasn't getting involved with no boy and doing that again. So my mom was just, anyway, senior prom was coming up. So I didn't have anybody to take me. Um, but I really wanted to go. I wanted to go. And so I was kind of acting like I really didn't care, but I really did. And so my sister would ask me, she said, you know, who are you taking on your prom? And I said, nobody, I ain't going. So she said, why are you going on your prom? And me, my, meanwhile, she had been to two already. And uh, she said, no, she said, well, um, well, Jimmy said, I'm going to take you. I said, what? And I said, well, I don't know. I have to see. <laughs> so now this, now this time, at this time, I'm like, playing hard to get, but it was like, oh, well, I don't know. I have to see, but I really, really wanted him to take me. I really did. And that's, that's what I think really kind of sealed it for me as far as us being back together again. And, um, you know, it was a kind of a last minute, like, you know, like, hurry, okay, let's hurry, get my dress. My mother made, made me dress. And she knew I was going with him. And even though it was still like tension between him and my family because, because of the whole situation with me. And um, still, she tried to be cordial. She tried to, you know, she really tried hard to just make me feel like she was, you know, trying to do the best thing for me. And so we went on prom and that's really when I, we started really, I started feeling like, you know, we were a couple. How we got to move? Let me see. This was about 1970. It was 1974. Still 74. 74. Still 74. After the prom. And graduation was actually coming up mm, for June, I think. Yeah, graduation was coming up for me. And uh, high school graduation. This was still in summer 74. And uh, my brothers, two younger brothers, bad, really bad. My sister actually had had a baby by Jimmy, by her, by uh, his brother. And let me see, we were still living on Reno Street in Philadelphia, the 
you know, black the ghetto part of Philadelphia, but it was just we I mean we had a pretty nice house, but it was we still lived on that small block of Reno Street. My mother and the her father children and she had had a baby. Her baby was about maybe a year, almost two, two years old. Mm-hmm. My sister, my oldest sister, I'm sorry. My oldest sister. And she, we were, the, the girl around the corner had a baby too. And they were like, my sis, oldest sister and her were kind of like friends. And they both had babies together. So they did things together. They got things together. They, you know, bought things, what they bought, you know, just a regular kind of relationship with young, young parents. For some reason, my brothers went around to the corner where she, my sister's uh, friend, lived. And I don't know what they were doing or why they were doing it. But the next thing I know, the girl comes around the corner and she starts, I mean, she come with a whole gang of her sister's cousins and, you know, with I mean, they had knives and everything. And she was saying, okay, which one of you bees want to fight me? Now, like I said, don't know what my brothers did. I know they did something that they weren't supposed to be doing. Because that's how they were. Just bad. But at that point, you know, you just don't back up from the fight. When you when you grow up rough like that in the ghettos like that, you just don't back down from the fight no matter what. And I definitely didn't want to fight. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't even, I didn't even portray myself that kind of way. But... Um, when she came out there and she was like, all right, which one of y'all bees want to fight me? I'm like, what's going on here? What, you know, what do you want to do? So at this, at this point, my, all of us come out, we come to our door and my sister came out, my youngest sister came out and my, and my, I don't even know if my brothers were there or not, but anyway, Mike happened to be there too. And so once she put that challenge out there like that, even though I didn't want to fight, I'm like, well, which one do you want? And, you know, I wasn't going to jump up. So she's, she was looking around, like, and I thought, like, her her conflict might have been with my older sister because, you know, they hung out a lot. But I did used to babysit for her sometimes. And uh, she said, well, you'll do. I said, well, okay. So I started taking off my earrings, started taking off the other one. I said, okay, let's go. <laughs> and we just got to fighting in the street. In the middle of the street, it was fighting, and, you know, it was just, it was just, it was not, not good. It was not good. Not something that I wanted either, but... It happened. That's what happened. Anyway, so Mike was there. He breaks up the fight. And they're like, oh, no, 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 no. Mike, you can't get involved. You can't get involved. But anyway, he breaks up the fight anyway. And now my ne- my neighbors across the street are coming across the street. And they're like, well, hey, what's going on? What's going on? Because they didn't know what was going on. And my mother was in church at the time. And 42nd Street was a few blocks away. And she didn't know what was going on. But being that my neighbor was friends with her, you know, she, that's how it was back then. Neighbors look out. Anyway, so they anyway they got us back in the house and it was just a big thing. The other sisters came around. My other little sister, young sister, she was still out there. We didn't realize it. And we heard them going around the corner. Oh, get that bee too. Let's get her too. And I'm like, no, my sister, our sister's out there. Our sister's out there. And I'm, you know, we trying to hurry and get out. And the neighbors is pulling us back. And Mike is still out there with them. And, uh... The next thing I knew, my my sis, the older sister's coming back in the house. I got her. I got her. I got that bit, you know. And she had stabbed her in the back. And then Mike was trying to break up the fight. And then I don't even know what happened from there. All I know is he went up to, he got a ride or went up to, to the church to get my mother. And to bring her back home to tell us what happened. And from there, my mother being distraught, trying to raise five kids in an area like that, gang war, gang violence, the Vietnam War was going on. You, you never knew when you had to duck from gunfire, you know, just shooting in the neighborhood or, you know, cops coming to somebody to beat somebody up. You, you just never knew what you were going to get. So she knew we had to go back to school in the summer, I mean, in the winter and the fall, and she just didn't know what to do. She knew it was going to be the summer coming. Everybody was going to be out. The girls, the people around the corner wanted to just get us and tell us we better not go back to school and, you know, we're going to get y'all. And it was just, it was terrible. So my mother, not knowing what to do, she called her brother. And her brother came over with a couple other men, you know, about four of them. And he just started talking to us about violence and, you know, how it's just not the way. It's just not the way to, you know, to be in 
to try to end nothing. And they talked to us for hours and hours and hours. And he, her brother finally said, well, look, I can take him down where I'm at. I'm on, you know, down to Pouton Village. He said, you know, we run a car wash there. They can come down there. They can be busy. They won't have to be in the streets in the summer. You know, so if you want to do it, you know, I'll, you know, I'll take you up. You know, I'll take him down to where I live at. So she said, oh, yeah, she was just thrilled. She was like, yeah, she said, OK. You know, Benny, she said, you know, can you do that for me? She said, OK, yeah. Anyway, so they started going down to Pouton Village, washing cars, taking care of the dogs and doing whatever he was doing. And going to the park. Which day? Oh, I'm sorry. Um, my two brothers, Chuck and Dennis, they were, they started going down there. And uh, they loved it. They loved it. They never, they, they never came back. But that's how we got it moved. So as things went on, my sisters, Sharon and Gail, they started going down there too. And they would always ask, well, how, how come, how come Debbie's not coming down? She's not coming down. I said, no, I'm going to graduate. I'm going to graduate and I'm not not doing, you know, that's where my tone region was. And also I was still, you know, Michael's girlfriend too, at the time too. So, you know, we did actually start kind of like talking about, you know, different things, maybe, you know, um, saving money, saving money, you know. Um, but I always told him I never wanted to get married. <laughs> I always told him I never wanted to get married. Anyway, that's how we got it. That's how I got to move. Because after I graduated, I did start going down. My uncle at the time, he was, I just knew him as my Uncle Benny. And that was her brother. So a lot of times when she would get in trouble, things would happen or she needed things, she would call him and he would always be there. Never, ever did he ever not be there. And later, later, what I, what we come to know as our uncle was known as John Africa. So that was her brother. And, you know, at the time, like I said, he was just known as my uncle, my Uncle Benny. But he was always different. He was always different. I just, you know, always different. Always kind to animals. Always, you know, given. He would give the animals the same food that he would eat, or give them fresh hamburger out the, you know, at the supermarket. And we just ne- never could under- understand it, <laughs> you know. But he was always different, you know. And he's the person who started move. He's the person who actually started move, started the organization. Yeah. No, I wasn't in the movie. And I used to hear her family come back talking about me. And the first time I'd ever seen any move members was that day, later that night. Because uh, after the tension died down some, the crowds dispersed some. I went to my family's home, which was around the corner. And then when I came back to her house, there were some move members there. And I don't know where I had been up to that point, you know, I don't really recall Bob Marley or anybody, but I had never seen anyone with dreadlocks personally. And I was taken aback when I came in the house and I seen these guys there, you know, and they, like she said, they were in a conversation and they were sort of, they weren't taking their side, even though they knew that was um, Benny's, family. They were telling them they were all wrong with how they handled the situation. The violence went away. And, um, I didn't hear too much of their message. I was distracted by their appearance at the time. So I just didn't, I'd never seen people that looked like that before. But no, um, and I wasn't a socially conscious person. I wasn't a socially conscious person, nor did I care to be. You know, I was just hanging out you know, being a wild guy. So my interest was not in being in or listening to the information he said. But uh, some of the demonstrations they came back from, you know, I was still at the house sometimes because I was still, man, Debbie was still dating. So what changed your mind? Ultimately, you both joined MOVE, presumably together. Mm-hmm. Not that, not actually. You were going down more. I was yeah. I was going down more because she was going down and uh, going down there, you know. So just trying to show interest in what she was interested in, you know, as my girlfriend, you know, I'm trying to support that. But um, 
and then seeing some of the things that they were doing down there. You know, they were demonstrating against the police stations. And, I, you know, I'd heard something peripherally about, you know, can help me from that neighborhood and not be aware of, uh, like, the Black Panthers who, you know, have headquarters nearby and what was being done to them or Martin Luther King or, you know, so we're talking about some of the things that sounded similar to me at the time. I still had no interest in it, though. You know, and it wasn't until that they had arrested her little brother Chuck for uh, a truancy. Mm-hmm. And, and they locked him up for 10 days for truancy. Truancy is not attending school. And I said, that demonstration I'll go to. You know, I know him. You know, I know him since he was a little boy. So I went to that demonstration. And a lot of the things they said about their treatment once encountering police I uh, experienced that all in that one demonstration, you know. So it made me listen more to the information that they were talking about and paid more attention to some of the things that were going on socially in Philadelphia and on the basement, you know. We encountered a lot of the same things racially down camp regimes, you know, so. What's up, Black Love fam? It's David Wazicki, host of Man to Man, and just got the word on the final season of Black Love. Wow. Wow. So after five seasons, we're heading into the sixth and final season. And I'm genuinely excited for this one because if you're a regular listener to my show, you know I shout out New York Strong, being born and raised, New York, Spanish Harlem, what up, shout out. But they got Papoose, DJ Envy, JB Smooth, all in the lineup. And the fact that they're actually going to be open and vulnerable and honest about their relationships, I'm here for it. And by the way, I would love to have all three men from man to man. That'd be a dope idea. In the meantime, you can check out the final season of Black Love Saturday, July 23rd at 10 p.m. 9 central on OWN. And in the meantime, make sure to check out all previous seasons on the Black Love Plus app. From 74 to 78 is when the incident happened, August 8th, 1978. Um, Up until that time, MOVE organization had been engaging in uh, a series of demonstrations um, about social issues throughout our community. Um, uh, When I first started coming down, they were demonstrating against the zoo about his treatment, mistreatment of animals, of puppy palaces, um, not just formal demonstrations, but things throughout the neighborhoods. Uh, um, when they would see the abuse of animals, you know, guys be dog fighting these days. Well, back then, John Africa was confronting these people. It was, so it wasn't just like the cops, you know, it was mm-hmm. issues of gang war. Circuses. Um, yeah, so, like I said, I wasn't necessarily attracted to these kind of things because I didn't, I wasn't politically aware like that or socially conscious like that. But, um, you know, being around them and seeing some of these things firsthand made me start to feel compelled to speak out also. You know, when you see people beaten, beaten down and or somebody being seriously neglected in the, in your community. So, but in any case, yeah, we had four, this had been going on for three years and my level of commitment was ramping up. So when an incident happened, uh, Janine's and Phil's child was trampled and death by the cops. And they went down uh, City Hall and was just demanding attention to this situation and uh, some action as a result of it. And was getting nothing. You know, they was, you know, we don't care, you know, from an administration. So things escalated, tensions escalated, you know. 
and um, move and invited some city council people to the house to move headquarters because the administration had said that uh, there was no child, no incident occurred. And um, Janie Blackwell, Lucian Blackwell, Blackwell, who was city councilman, and uh, President of City Council, Joe Coleman, came to the house and they showed him uh, the child. And they demanded an investigation. The city still wouldn't do anything. So um, anyway, that situation culminated in August 8th where hundreds of cops came, converged on the house and uh, tried to forcibly evict us from there. And that's how we became arrested. That's when we were arrested and um, charged with the murder of a policeman. And in between that, it was uh, there was still mountain mounting tensions between Move and the city because they just didn't like the way we were anyway. You know, in the seventies, early seventies, coming right off of like the Black Panther movement, they would just you know they just weren't uh, meshing with the way we were hair looking like it was and. And complaints from the neighbors about the dogs we had because we we rescued these dogs from you know bad situations drowning starving to death you know and so we did start collecting you know animals that were being abused and things like that so that just kind of like just added to everything else all added to the police brutality that we had received from from the city of philadelphia and then that culminated into something else with the house inspection. They wanted to come, you know, look at the house and, you know, saying that we had, um, you know, we couldn't have a fire burning and just things like that. And so the culmination of of Janine's and Phil's baby being killed was just the ultimate, the ultimate stop for move. And so May 77, May 1977 was when move did man the platforms with with weapons and to just say, you know, we've, we've had enough. We're not taking any more. Anything that's being done to you by the city of Philadelphia, by the cops, was going to be seen out in the open. It was going to be no more back alleys, no dark streets, no not being harassed on, you know, at a police station where nobody could see what was going on, um, where, you know, there was no witnesses. Anything you do to move at this point is going to be done out in the open. So this was the stance that we took. Um, that confrontation, man, it went on for a year to 1970, March of 1978. At that point, move made a move in the city, made an agreement that, OK, because we had talks, people were liaisons. They had clergy that was talking, had talks between move in the city of Philadelphia. Uh, Walt Palmer, Oscar Gaskins was the lawyer that was Joel Todd and some of the other people. Yep, Rendell, they were all involved in these talks to try, try to you know, just try to straighten out the situation. And in that time, between 1977 and 1978, we were still on the platform with 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 weapons and um, to show them that, you know, we, you know, we just couldn't take this anymore, you know. And all while that happened, there, none of the cops did anything. No, there was no adverse, you know, actions against us, you know. And once the agreement was made, we did agree to come down from the platform and turn over the weapons and the police, they searched. Which were all inoperable. They searched the house. They didn't find any weapons and they were all inoperable. Front page headline, move makes fools of the city. You know, all the weapons were inoperable and that was a psychological effect to show that when you, when, if, for instance, if there's a bully and that's bullying you and you have an, an equalizer, they're not going to be so quick to bully. And that was the message that was given to them. When they saw those weapons, they wasn't so quick to come in, to beat us, to come in and just raid the house. They stood back to say, OK, well, wait a minute. Now we got to think about this. And that was, like I said, a psychological effect. And it did. It worked. You know, they didn't come in. So once we turned over the weapons, which were all inoperable, they were also given the leeway to search the house to search everything to make sure there was no more weapons in the house, which they did. And um, so to their satisfaction, we came down off the platform, then um, made the agreement that we was not going to 
that we were going to leave the house. So people from there went to New York. Some people went to Virginia. Some people went to Chester. We were still in the house. It was 12 of us still in the house. Um, and yeah, a bunch of other stuff went down as far as, you know, city reporters going different places, telling move people, move into your neighborhood. They're going to do this and they're going to eat your cows. It was just it was just so much bad publicity, you know. But the real thing was that we had no way of, I mean, we were still in the house, 12 of us. There are other move people had already gone to different locations. And so in two, less than two weeks, they came out to the house to tell us that they had a warrant for arrest because because we didn't move, because we didn't vacate the premises. You in know? the meantime, they're arresting the people who did leave. They're telling yeah. us we have a, a, a warrant, a, vacate, a vacating warrant, but... Uh, everybody who was vacating uh, when they went to the premises that they were at, the local authorities went there and arrested them first. So we were still. Yeah, they arrested us. They went to Rochester, New York. They went to Richmond, Virginia. They went to Chester. These are Philadelphia police that now they have set up with the other states and the other things to arrest all the move people who left the house in 1978. This was August then. This was August of 1978. Now, the agreement was made in March. We were together for four years when we were arrested. I was, um, let me see, from 74 to 78. In 1978, that's when I became, I was pregnant. And yeah, 1978, I was at that point, I was eight months pregnant when we were arrested uh, in Powhatan Village at the MOVE headquarters. And we had had a child two years previous to that, too. Uh, right. So uh, when we were arrested, I don't know if you've seen any of the film, but Debbie had our daughter with at, uh, who was 23 months old. And she was eight months pregnant with uh, Michael Jr. Yeah, so we were together for four years, but we were together two years before we actually had our first baby. So we had our first baby who was a girl in 1976. We was we were involved in MOVE at that time. Then two years later, almost two years later, which was in 1978, I was pregnant again with our son. We were arrested from the house in 1978 and we were subsequently um, given a trial, sent, found guilty and sentenced from to 30 to 100 years each in prison. There was nine of us, so we were among the nine. I guess you could say we really didn't have a really, like it wasn't a, like a romantic type of relationship because we were just involved now with, you know, with MOVE, but our relationship still was, it was a good good relationship, I thought so. Um, there were things that we just didn't, um, did that we didn't always agree with, you know, with, with MOVE, I mean. Um, but we just, you know, we just kind of kept going on. Well, it felt... Well, we were under siege, mm-hmm. and it felt like, you know, it felt tense, you know, and it was tense, and it was a tumultuous time. It was, it, you know, it's it's like, you know, you didn't know when you walked out that house, um, you know, we were cops everywhere, we were followed. Uh, so it didn't make things, you know, it, a lot of times you didn't have time to think, you know, and we did not talk. And some of the conversations we have now, we have about those talks we did not have. Mm-hmm. That's some of the conversations we have now. And uh, in retrospect, you can see a lot of things. At the time, we did not look at a lot of things. You know, and uh, sometimes regrettably so. You know, but um, we did see the cause is is just when um, someone is not addressing someone's child who had been killed, and we wanted to be supportive of that. You know, we wanted to be. Um, and we felt compelled to to take some kind of action. 
Um, but I think our relationship as far as a real personal relationship was developed more, I think, actually after we went to prison. Actually, because like, you know, like we were really married to move, married to the cause, married to a revolution. And so that's pretty much everybody was like our personal, like intimate relationship was more so we didn't like it said we didn't really do a lot of talking was just like the next thing that was going to happen the next thing we were going to do what we you know how we were going to do it or you know as far as getting food or because he was a store like the store man and so he was the one that you know would make sure the food got to us and you know the wood got chopped or so it was a lot of work that was involved in doing all that but our relationship is and as far as the two of us really kind of developed more after we went to prison. Actually, after I had Mike Jr., when I had him in my cell, and I sent him a note that, you know, just said we had a son, and his name is Michael, and Janet took it to him, you know, in a court, one of the court hearings. And I think really that's when we really kind of started really, really communicating with each other as far as, you know, about ourselves, about ourselves and about our relationship. And, you know, and even though we were in prison, we, we, the only communication we had was by letter. And then three years down the county, we did three years down the county, we talked some, but then we was mostly talked about court and what we would, you know, what was going to happen in court and what, you know, our defense, what our, you know, like just going over preliminary hearings and it was just a lot of legal stuff that we talked about. Intimate details, you know, I know what you're asking and we yeah. just didn't ask. Yeah. We just didn't talk that much about things. And like I said, sometimes reg- regrettably. So, you know, we just didn't discuss a lot of things, a lot of feelings that we had or uh, individual decisions that we might have made um, other than the ones we did. And we wrote to each other often. Yeah. Um, but like I said, uh, some of the individual decisions and um, feelings that um, we may have had at the time when we were talking about these things later on, we didn't discuss until prison. Like what? Like... Um, whether we should have stayed there. In the house? In the house. In the house. Mm-hmm. Or whether, what would have been best for our family? What would have been, you know, but, you know, um, given my mindset at the time, I don't know if, I don't know, I just don't know how things would have worked out either way, you know. Like I said, hindsight is, you know, it's supposed to be 2020, but, you know, I, I couldn't have said that, um, you know, I don't know how things would have worked out if I would have chose to do something else. I don't know. Well, I thought it got better. Yeah. Actually. I, de- I definitely know that our relationship grew. It grew and got a lot better because we did communicate and we did talk about our personal feelings and what we felt, what we personally felt, you know, rather than as an organization and as um, what we should do or what I should or what I feel like I should do. We start talking more about what we should do and what we should have done. Also still moving forward as far as, you know, doing what we could do as far as the revolution as far as speaking out against, you know, the wrong that we saw, but, you know, talked about more about the decisions we needed to make for our children and, you know, the mistakes that we, that we probably did make that we shouldn't have made. First of all, I did not feel when we were first arrested, knowing that we had not committed that crime that we would be there for as long as we had been. So, you know, 
not in the furthest reaches of my mind that I feel that we would be in jail for four years, let alone 40, you know, but as the time kept mounting, you know, we talked about what that meant for our, our family, our individual family, our nuclear family, and what it would mean for our children. And we had to start making decisions individually that way. And those things, those shared experiences, you know, brought about uh, more intimate conversations between her and I. And I was always hopeful, but sometimes I really seriously doubted it. You know, when, you know, after eight, nine uh, att uh, attempts at parole, and this is after 30 years, after three decades, you know, and they still continue to deny, deny, deny. And, the reasons for uh, they were giving for denying us. You know, it didn't seem that we were ever get out of here sometimes. I was always hopeful, but I was always, I always felt like, you know, like, I mean, there was times in my, you know, feeling in my soul that I would feel really down and feel like, and question, you know, is this ever gonna happen? Am I ever gonna, you know, be, to be able to hug my children on the street? Am I ever going to be able to, you know, be with Mike again? And, you know, so I had some serious questions about that with my, and myself, but I just felt like it had to happen. Like it was going to happen. Even if it didn't, my mind was like, you know, in my mind, I had to make it happen. And although I'm not saying I, in my mind, I made it happen, you know, I just never, ever felt like it would not happen. And to say, I mean, I guess it was just such a urgent feeling that I wanted to happen so much that I just, in my, in my mind, I just couldn't see it no other way. I just couldn't see it no other way. Our partnership is like the strongest that it has ever been, you know, that I feel. And um, he is definitely my partner, like, for life forever. And, you know, I mean, I can't say enough about our partnership, our relationship, our, um, you know, our um, likeness. But things are definitely different. Like, he's a different person. I'm a different person. Um, but the thing that we share, the, um, the intimate uh, caring and love that the bond that we have is not different. You know, it's not, it has gotten so much stronger. And uh, like we do have difference of opinions. We do have difference, you know, we do things differently just because of our situation. Um, some things are just, we're just uh, gritted in us because we've been in that situation so long. Like, I don't want to use, I don't want to say institutionalized, but we do have, we have patterned things from being institutionalized so long, you know, that we have to come out of, so to speak, like, just like in everyday life, just like walking everyday life. We have to come out of those things, but we are different. You know, we have different, very different views on, on things that are in situations, but we talk about it. We talk about it. We communicate about it. We let it out. You know, we, you know, yell about it. You know, well, I don't think that should be that way. Listen, Deb, you know, <laughs> I'm telling you. And so we we fight about it, but we always come to, I mean, like I mentioned those earlier on, I mentioned that sometimes you even get at 2.45 in the morning. And if it's on my mind, I say, Mike, you know what I was thinking? I was thinking about when we were talking to Mike Jr. tonight. <laughs> and he's like right there, you know, and he does the same to me, you know, like, you know what, Dad? I think, um, and I'm like, what time is it? <laughs> Mike, it's 310. Uh, yeah, I've been up a while, you know, and some of our deepest, dark, deepest decisions, you know, or communication comes at that time in the morning a lot of times and then well Deb's always been my girl man. she's always been my girl and you know and a lot of these years 
you know, I was fighting for my girl and for my family. And, you know, I wanted us to be tight. You know, I wanted our family to be very cohesive. And some of the things, some of the times in prison that I was fighting for wasn't just for prison reform or environmental issues. It was, you know, for the health and well-being of my family. And I wanted them. I wanted that. I wanted to fight for them. So bad, you know. And um, um, so a lot of my motivation, most of my motivation was for that. I used to always say I didn't want to get married because when I, because of what my mother went through, and her relationship, you know, did you know just didn't work out. And so in my mind, I always felt like I said, well, you know what, I want a boyfriend, you know, I want a man, but I don't want to get married because in my mind, I felt like I didn't want to have no man to have papers on me, because I felt like once they had papers on you, that was it. And not just my mother's relationship, but other relationships. I've seen, you know, women down the street, I mean, be beat up by their husbands. You know, I mean, dragged by the hair, you know. You know, and and they would say it. You know, the guys would say it. They would say, yeah, well, I got papers on you and you, you know, you're my wife and I'm going to do what I want to do. And then, you know, that stuff, even as a young child, just resonated in my head and it just stayed there. And so in my mind, I did not want to get married because I felt like that was the end of my independence. Like I didn't have any say so over me and that some other person had a say so over me. And I never wanted to get that. But but he changed my mind. He did change my mind. I mean, uh, he, you know, because I felt that he was so genuine. He was so genuine in his love for me. He was so genuine and caring and so and I would start to see that you know not always in the beginning but I always you know I would afterwards I would always see it you know that he would put me first before even in him his own self and you know that deep that kind of deep love that you it just made me want to be you know with him it made me want to you know I wanted to be with him I wanted that you know and that's actually what really, really made me love him, you know. And um, so I wanted to, if he wanted to get married, I wanted to do it too. When did this upcoming date, ceremony, everything, how did it come up? My I- junior actually brought it all up. <laughs> and uh, but I think it was a conversation between, it was a conversation I believe that, his dad and him had um, when we were released from prison and that I didn't share in that conversation. No, actually, I've been talking about it for years. And, you know, it didn't happen just be, just, just when we got out of prison. You know, we had, you know, I've been trying to get things going even before knowing that getting out was a... Uh, uh, a possibility, you know. And soon, I just wanted to be that way. Um, and, you know, Deb speaks about how I was and, you know, how I treated her. Well, that was part of that process, too. I mean, you know, like I spoke about earlier about the maturation process. And, you know, because to be sure, when I started out pursuing her, you know, I was in no way responsible. And even though I felt the way I did about her, that didn't compel me to be responsible either, you know? So, there was a lot of things that we experienced over the years. Um, To be sure, a lot of things, uh, a lot of principles I've gained uh, from the organization, from MOVE, from John Africa. Um, My father and mother were surely an example for me. Um, They was committed their whole time together. 
But, you know, you can have an example at home. Then when you get to the streets, you become a different person because of the streets, because of that influence. And all my older brother's influence and, you know, all that was combining or converging on me, you know. So I was emulating them and the streets. And that was at times in conflict with what a responsible relationship should be. And uh, what I was trying to be, you know, as an example of the community. But he has, you know, over the years, he has said, you know, why don't we get married, you know? And I was like, I still was in my mind thinking, you know, oh, he don't really care like that. So I would just brush it off, like, you know. And then every now and then, you know, he would say, well, let's get married. And I'm even in prison, though, even within the last, like, maybe five years before we got out, you know. He was trying to get me a ring, you know, and uh, to make it formal, to make it um, legal, I guess you would say. Um, and then when we finally got out, um, I think it was Mike Jr. that said, hey, Mom, man, you and Dad are getting married on something. I said, what? We are? <laughs> he was like, yeah, Dad said, Mike, I'm marrying your mom. And... Uh, he said, okay, let's do it. Yeah, next thing I know. And me, me and Mike has had, had, had this conversation many times mm -hmm. throughout the years. You know, so uh, Mike is a lot like me in that regard. You know, when I want something to happen, I want to do it yesterday. I don't like to, you know, plan things, you know, far in the future, you know. But Mike is very organized and he likes to put things together and, you know, he likes a lot of people to celebrate and the things that he experienced. So. Yeah. I'm mostly looking forward to after we get uh, married, April 6th. I'll, let me put it to you this way. I would like to, I would like to be able to look forward to have a, a nice, quiet, laid back life um, with fireplace <laughs> it, it can be a room this 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 small or big however you want to say it you know and just live out the rest of my life in peace you know that's my that's what I would like now what I have you know with Mike and you know the rest of the family you know, uh, somewhat around us. And uh, we lost a lot when we didn't, when we didn't raise our children. And you know, I noticed things that we just can't get back. And so really like to have our children in our lives, you know, as close as we can possibly be. Because now that they've grown, they have their own families. It's just not natural to have children up to you that close. But um, definitely with our children, immediately around us now what I look forward to what my what what I you know look forward to is almost the same thing almost the same thing as far as you know living still just you know um you know I, I mean I feel pretty happy now that we we don't have the things that we would like to have but I mean I feel I, I remember waking up one morning tell Mike you know Mike senior after we got out um I said, you know what? This is probably the happiest that I've ever felt in my life. And, you know, being in our son's house, being him, you know, being with him and just seeing the future that maybe, you know, that we would at least form some kind of bond with our, with our children, you know, and try to make up for what we didn't give them. Yeah, to be sure um, we have... In our life, you know, we made decisions that affected a lot of other people's lives. And uh, most immediately, our children, you know, and our parents too. I mean, we, there's a lot of things that, you know, I'd like to try to make, you know, once you have children, your responsibility is to your children. And they're, they've been so deprived of a lot of things that, I, you know, it's almost impossible to speak about our future and just going off into the sunset without 
speaking about the void in their lives. You know, even though they have children of their own, you know, it's such a gap that uh, they're missing. That uh, in some way, I like to fulfill that for them. You know, it's, you know, half my nuclear family is gone. You know, my parents are gone since we were on this, you know, this 40 years, you know, brothers and sisters. Uh, you know, the, my fellow move people, you know, uh, they've lost children. You know, some of the things that we look forward to, they can never look forward to, you know, natural. You know, so I like to, we've been on some speaking engagements where we've uh, shared our experiences and some people have come up to us and said how much it helped them. Mm -hmm. And um, along with our children, we like to help as much as we can in that way too.